Scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, starting in verse 27, going through verse 38. Hear God's word. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they said to him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked him, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, and turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. As a prayer of illumination, I wanted to read to you just a couple verses from John Donne's sonnet. Number 10. As I prepared this sermon all week, this sonnet kept coming to my mind, and so it's a prayer. It was a prayer for myself, and I, I want it to be a prayer for us as we hear God's word. So close your eyes and pray. <laughs> Batter my heart, three person God, for you, as yet, but knock, breathe, shine. And seek to mend, that I may rise and stand, overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. Take me to you, imprison me, for I, except you, enthrall me. Never shall be free, never chaste, except you ravish me. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we no longer have a self in our culture. We have a selfie. You are no longer selves. You're selfies. You know what a selfie is, right? I mean, it's where you take your phone and you take a picture of yourself in front of something, right? In a way, I think the selfie, the concept of the selfie and the reality of the selfie has been around a lot longer than actual selfies. But what is a selfie? It's a, it's a take a picture of yourself in, so, in, in front of something important and great, and you're part of the picture, right? I mean, um, Washington Post has this uh, 
photo stream of the age of the selfie, and it has all these pictures of, of famous people and other people taking photos of themselves in front of other people, like Pope Francis or, or President Obama or, or whomever, right? You go to the Great Wall of China, and you have a picture of the wall with yourself in it, right? Or you go somewhere, and it's a picture of yourself, right? That's the idea. It's the idea of the selfie, and I think this is symbolic of how we think about ourselves, is we can't imagine the world without ourselves being part of the picture, Right? That's what it means to be a selfie. It's, it's to not be able to imagine the world without yourself as part of the picture. To live in the age of a selfie is that you, you are the interpretive key of the cosmos. Each and every single one of you. You, in a sense, are the key that unlocks the meaning of the universe as part of the universe. Before the selfie, the age of the selfie, we always had selfs or selves, <laughs> um, and we are always prone to selfishness or narcissism or whatever you want to call it. But, but there was a difference in that before the age of the selfie, there was always some external reference point outside of the self that played the role as, as an ultimate reference point for meaning in life, God, right? family, nature, the nation, country, nature. These things were outside of us in a sense, and we always measured ourselves in the light of those things that were larger and bigger than us. And I think to live in the age of the selfies is not to necessarily stop believing in God or, or country or family or things like that, but it's always to believe in those things in the light of yourself, right? That you always approach those things in the light of how they look through your eyes and how they make sense. Without ourselves as being part of the picture, it doesn't really make sense or have meaning. That's what it means to have a selfie. That's the world we live in. We have the ultimate, we have a selfie president. Think about this, right? There's, um, and of course, philosophers and theorists have, have talked about this for many years, for the past 50 years, been reflecting on this, called the expressive individual or the narcissistic self or the therapeutic self. I like David Brooks recently called it the big me, right? Now, here's the question. What does it mean to follow Jesus in the age of the selfie? What does it mean to follow Jesus as a selfie? Especially when you hear that call of his, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever would lose his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. And what I want to wrestle with this morning with you is what does it mean for us to respond to Jesus' call to discipleship, to deny ourselves and pick up our cross in the age of, a, of the selfie? So there's, there's three things I want us to reflect on that I, this story leads us into. To pick up our cross, to, to be followers of Jesus, requires, one, an encounter with his identity, It requires us to entertain his suffering and then to embrace his death. To encounter his identity and entertain his suffering and to embrace his death. You have to encounter the real Jesus if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, right? That seems to go without saying. We must have an encounter with Jesus on his own terms, not on our terms, in order to understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But this is actually pretty difficult, not only in the age of the selfie, but prior to that. You see this in our text. And the story is framed, really, this, this question of who is Jesus? What is his identity? And who am I in the relationship to him? 
And so Jesus asked this question to his disciples. Who do the people say that I am? Now, mind you, in the ancient world this time, this is a world of holy men, religious movements, political and religious zealots. It is a world that is populated with every imaginable religious belief and movement that you can think of. Don't, don't think of this as like a really kind of, there's only a couple options. And so you can imagine that all these different responses about who Jesus is, well, John the Baptist, right, he was killed. Maybe Jesus has come back, reincarnated John the Baptist, right, because he shares a lot of the characteristics of him. Or Elijah, right? Elijah was the one prophet that never actually died, but it was assumed in the heaven, and Elijah was in heaven. He knows what's going on up there, and he's come down, and he's here to tell us. Or one of the other prophets, But then Jesus gets more specific, and he asks us the same question. But who do you say that I am? And here we have this very important moment in the Gospel. Here you have the first human being in the Gospel of Mark that understands who Jesus is. And Peter says, on behalf of all the disciples, you're the Christ, the Messiah, right? This is a technical term. You're the Messiah. Nobody, see, in the Gospel of Mark, nobody has yet recognized Jesus as the Messiah. Only the demons have actually said that he's the Messiah. Nobody else gets it. And finally, Peter gets it, right? The disciples seem to get it. And Jesus immediately says, okay, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody who I am. And this is a theme that runs throughout Mark. And the uh, writers, Gospel writers, they talk about this as the messianic secret in Mark. Mark, Jesus is often silencing demons, saying, you can't speak about me, you know who me, I am. When he heals people, he says, don't tell anybody about this. And his disciples finally say, you're the Christ. And he's like, okay, don't say anything. And it raises this really interesting question. Why? I mean, if Jesus is the Messiah, don't you think people, he would want people to know about it and get that, right? Why silence people? Why is he so elusive and secretive? I think the simplest answer to this question is simply that the people have a very clear, defined conception of what a Messiah is, and it is not Jesus' understanding. It's not Jesus' understanding. And there's a sense in which Jesus himself wants to be, again, be the Lord over his own revelation, the one who says who he is and who he is not, right? And in the Gospel of John, there's a scene where after the feeding of the 5,000, um, this great miracle, it says the crowd wanted to take, seize Jesus and make him king, right? And there's a sense in which, you know, Jesus, if he reveals his identity, is like, oh, he's the Messiah. Let's enthrone him right now. We're going to take these Romans out. And we'll make Jesus our king. See, in this time, of course, the people had very little. Their category for Messiah was very military. He's a political liberator. He's going to set us free from the Romans and the puppet kings like Herod. We're going to make him king. But so when Jesus... So here you have to understand... So, so it says here that Jesus began to speak very plainly about his suffering. That he must be rejected by the chief priests and the elders and the teachers of the law. And that he must suffer death and rise again on the third day. You can imagine Peter and the disciples are like, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 wait. What? What? You're going to suffer? And, and this is where, Je- <laughs> you can imagine, just play the scene out in your mind, right? Jesus begins teaching them, and then Peter, he's like, takes Jesus aside. There's been a huge misunderstanding. That's not how it has to be. It can be very different, right? 
And then Jesus' response to Peter seems pretty severe to us. What does Jesus say? He says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, you have to understand, it's not as if Peter hasn't already put a lot into this. He's left everything to follow Jesus. He gave up his career and vocation and family to follow Jesus. And all of a sudden, he's realizing that what Jesus means by messiahship and following is very different than the one he had. But Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. See, Peter is like the blind man in the story right before this, where Jesus, uh, he heals a blind man. In the two stages, first he spits in his eye and puts his hands on, and he says, what can you see? And he says, all I see, all I see are like people look like walking trees. And then Jesus touches his eyes again, and then he sees clearly. See, Peter and the disciples, and I think oftentimes we're like the first stage of the blind man. Like, Jesus has touched our eyes, but who he really is, it's really blurry. He looks like a walking tree, or, or he looks like a political messiah who's going to liberate us from Romans. Or in our case, in the age of the selfie, he looks like personal Jesus. Personal Jesus. You guys know this Depeche Mode song, Personal Jesus? Do you want me to sing it? Yes. Reach out, touch faith. Okay, you guys all know. I'm not going any further. I think this actually captures perfectly how we think about Jesus in our culture. Reach out, touch faith. Your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers. Someone who cares. Your own personal Jesus. Someone to hear your prayers. Someone who's there, feeling unknown. And you're all alone, flesh and bone, by the telephone. Lift up the receiver, I'll make you a believer. Personal Jesus, right? That, that's how we think about Jesus. He's, he's there if we need Him. He's right there at the phone. He's flesh and blood, right? If I'm having a hard time. But friends, this is not suffering Jesus. <laughs> this is not Jesus on His own terms. This is Jesus made in our own image. This is not a Jesus that ever asks us anything of us. He's always there to answer us. This is a Jesus that always accepts me for who I am, but never asks me to change or do anything differently. But friends, this is not the kind of Jesus that could ever possibly call you to pick up a cross. Or Jesus that you could ever comprehend what that would mean. It's, how would that even work, right? See, here's the question, friends. We have to, all of us, and this is a, all, every age has to deal with this. Who is Jesus? He asks us, who do you say I am? Is this a Jesus where his identity is built around us as the ultimate selfie, right? We're in the picture right here with Jesus. Or is it that our identity is built on him? On who he says he is as the suffering Messiah? Here's a question to maybe gauge that for you a bit. How, whether you have a, a selfie Jesus or you have the Son of Man, do you have a Jesus that has ever rebuked you? Do you have a Jesus that could ever rebuke you? Or ever contradicted you? He's ever said no when you've wanted something really, really bad with all of your heart, with the deepest part of your soul, and he says no. Have you ever had, do you have that kind of Jesus in your life? And, and, and if you do, what, how would that look? Like, do, what, how does that happen, right? Friends, if, if we can't answer yes to those questions, we have to ask ourselves this deeper, more troubling question whether we've ever actually encountered him. See, 
You've only encountered the real Jesus when he becomes the ultimate reference point of your life. He's in the picture without you. (laughs) But he becomes the final authority. He is the bar and the measure for what is true and what is good and what is beautiful. That's what it means to have an encounter with Jesus. And your understanding, of course, of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to be a follower of Jesus, flows directly from your understanding of what it means for Jesus to be a Messiah. See, for Peter and the disciples, Jesus was going to be a political liberator, and so they were ready to pick up swords and fight on his behalf. And I think that was their understanding of discipleship. The cross was not part of that. And for us, we often think of personal Jesus that actually is just a therapeutic Jesus, that his chief goal and aim in life is for us to realize our full potential, to be happy, to flourish. Now, there's not a lot of room for cross in that understanding of Jesus either. So your understanding of discipleship follows from your understanding of messiahship. And that brings us to the the second point, which is to be a follower of Jesus, to pick up our cross, means we have to entertain his suffering. We have to entertain his suffering in our life. And by that I mean entertain. Think about entertaining. You have to allow his suffering to be a welcome guest in in your life. You don't necessarily go seeking out suffering, but you have to let suffering come into your life as a welcome guest, not as, as an enemy or something you hate or despise or resent. This was very hard for Peter and for the disciples, and that even after the rebuke, and even after two more times in the gospel, Jesus speaks explicitly about his death and resurrection. It says that the disciples just they didn't get it, and they were afraid to ask him about it anymore. So they just kind of went going on with things. And then you get to this moment towards the end, where be right before Jesus is to be uh, uh, handed over and arrested, and there's this conversation where Peter's like, "I will die for you, Jesus." <laughs> and Jesus is like, "Really? You will deny me three times?" And then you get to the garden, and Judas betrays Jesus. And Peter pulls out his sword and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant who's there. Because he's still ready to die. He's willing to suffer for Jesus under certain conditions. Uh, He's willing to die for Jesus as a hero, right? As a warrior. But when Jesus is actually arrested and then moments later in the gospel narrative, you have a servant girl asking Peter, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter's like, no, I never knew him. I never knew him. See, Peter was willing to suffer for Jesus under certain conditions, but he could make no sense at all of the kind of suffering that Jesus was facing when he was going towards, which is senseless. Senseless suffering. It doesn't make any sense. That is not in the plan. That does not fit with my understanding. I can't entertain this kind of suffering in my life. And I I want to remind you of what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Peter... Satan, get behind me. That seems kind of severe, don't you think? Oh, you're misunderstood. No, Jesus understands that Peter's rebuke of him, his attempt to talk him out of a suffering understanding of his mission, is actually Satan himself tempting. To want to have Jesus without his suffering, to want to have Christ without the cross, is satanic. It's satanic. It's satanic to think that you can have Jesus without his cross and suffering. And this is, of course, Jesus is tempted in the, devil, tempted in the desert by the devil. In the Gospel of Mark, the last temptation, Jesus is brought up to a hill where you can see all of Jerusalem, and Satan says, if you just bow down and worship me, you can have it all. You can rule without suffering. 
glory without death. And here, Satan is tempting Jesus again through his own disciple. You know, this idea of suffering is very difficult for us. It's not that suffering has ever been easy for any culture or any people, but there is a way that in our secular age, in our secular context, the challenge of suffering is weighty. It's incomprehensible and meaningless. Arguably, there's no other culture in human history that is less ill-equipped with internal resources to deal with serious suffering and death than our own culture. And the reason is this, is that for us, as a selfie, if I'm the ultimate reference point, if I'm the ultimate end of all of life and meaning in my own thing, when there's a suffering that comes in that wrecks me, that seems to pull everything away from me that I thought I built my life on, all you can do is look at that and think, my life is completely meaningless. There is no God. There is no nothing, right? There's nothing beyond me. That kind of suffering... See, when you have that understanding of yourself, you can't, you can't suffer because it ruins you. See, we can deal with certain kind of suffering, right? Like I can... I want to lose weight, right? So I'm going to work out hard and it's painful or I'm not going to eat. We can deal with that suffering or I can deal with a kind of suffering of hard work because I know it's going to get me further ahead in my career. But a suffering that comes in from the outside that just knocks you off your feet and wrecks you, that's the kind of suffering that we don't even know how to, we don't even know how to approach it. That's part of being a selfie. I want to remind you what Jesus, what I mentioned last week about Jesus' suffering, that Jesus' suffering and death on the cross was the most perfect expression of his sexuality. That in other words, Jesus' true sexuality is, is to give of oneself in such a way that you give yourself away for the sake of another, which often involves suffering and death. You know, th- this is such an important... Th- this truth in this text is absolutely fundamental to everything moving forward as we talk about these issues of sexuality. Somebody sent me an um, interview with Scarlett Johansson, the actress, that perfectly captures what I would call selfie sexuality. And it's an interview that she gave um, just recently. Uh, she's recently also getting divorced for the second time, has a young child. But she's, I think this interview was given before that became news. But she says this about marriage. She says, I think the idea of marriage is very romantic. It's a beautiful idea. And the practice of it can be a very beautiful thing. I don't think it's natural to be a monogamous person. I might be skewered for that, but I think it's work. It's a lot of work. And the fact that it is such work for so many people, for everyone, the fact, that, the fact of that proves that it's not a natural thing. It's something I have a lot of respect for and have participated in, but I think it definitely goes against the instinct to look beyond. Now, this idea of looking beyond oneself, right? The idea that monogamy is hard, right? If you're going to be monogamous in marriage or uh, celibate in singleness, this will entail suffering in your life. It definitely goes against your nature in many ways. Contrast this with the witness and story of Wes Hill and his beautiful book, Washed and Waiting. This is a book our council has read, and I highly recommend you all read it. 
Wes Hill is, um, well, now he's a theologian and teaches, um, teaches at an sem- uh, Anglican seminary. But Wes Hill is lifelong, same-sex attracted man, grew up in a traditional evangelical home, wrestled all his life with being gay, went to Wheaton College, very traditional conservative, but no matter how he tried, he just couldn't make himself like women. <laughs> and yet he was also deeply convicted that the scriptures are clear about what God teaches about marriage between a man and a woman. And so he committed himself to lifelong celibacy. He didn't see any other option. And this book is really the story of that and his wrestling of that. It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book. And I remember uh, having a conversation with a friend who was wrestling with this issue at least how to think about it theologically and make sense of it. Married, couple kids, happily married, straight, right? And he, he came to me, and he was just struck, and he said, you know, I read this book, and I, it was very clear that, that Wes, Wesley Hill has understood that his sexuality is his cross. This is the cross he has to bear, and it's a big burden. And I ask myself, have I ever had to bear something like that? Have I ever had to bear something like that? And my response was, exactly. Now we can have a conversation. See, friends, until we come to this point, as a congregation, as the people of God, where we realize this question about sexuality is not just a theological question. It's a discipleship question. The response is not, you know, here's what Scripture says, and here's how we argue it, and here's... Friends, it's, it's the cross, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Do we, bear, do we really bear crosses? Or is this just the one sin that society doesn't, that we don't accept all the rest we can? So friends, this, don't be confused and think that this series is about just about sexuality or just about same-sex attraction or what. Friends, it's about all of us. All of us need to pick up the cross. All of us have to consider what is the cost What does it cost us to follow Jesus? There's no serious conversation about biblical sexuality that doesn't involve suffering, that doesn't have us thinking about suffering. Because if you're going to be faithful as a straight single, as a same-sex attracted single, as a happily married person, as an unhappily married person, suffering is at different times in your life going to play a role. Because covenantal faithfulness, commitment, to be faithful to your promises and your vows, brothers and sisters, will require suffering. <laughs> yes, Scarlett Johansson is right. It is work. It seems unnatural. You know, that's how God created us. See, when the disciples, they, 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 they looked at the cross, what they saw was an abyss. All they saw was Darkness. You know, we have had 2,000 years of Christian history where we have crosses on our necks and behind us, art history. You know, we're very comfortable with crosses. We like crosses, and there's a way in which the cross has been domesticated. It makes complete sense, in a sense. But real cross, the, the cross that the, that the disciples were looking at, they looked at that, no categories at all. All they could see was an open pit, an abyss, Total darkness. And how do you go from that to a Messiah that liberates? How do you go from that to a Messiah who brings salvation? Friends, the crosses in your life, (laughs) they will not say, hey, I'm a cross, right? 
The crosses in your life will hide themselves from you. You will not want to see them as crosses. You can say other things are crosses, or that person, that person has a cross, but this is not a cross. This is unjust. It's shaming. It's humiliating. There's no purpose to to it. That's a cross, friends. That's what the cross was. And yet, and here's the paradox of the Christian faith, it is precisely there in the cross that God is present. He's hidden, but He's there, friends. He's present. And you won't see it on this side. You can only see it on the other side. But you have to trust and you have to cling. See, to follow Jesus is to put your life on a frontal boundary. See, I'm not saying, suggesting, go out and look for crosses. and It will come to you. If you cling to Jesus, it will come to you. Suffering will come to you. Just like if you live at a, at a frontal boundary, there will be storms. <laughs> and the frontal boundary of our lives is the frontal boundary of heaven and earth. And that's where Jesus dwells. And that's where He calls us. And the more you go there, the more storms, challenges, and suffering in life will come. But be assured of this, brothers and sisters. God is present. He is there in the midst of the darkness and the abyss. To follow Jesus means to encounter his identity, to entertain his suffering, but lastly, it also it means to embrace his death. And here we're confronted with the heart and the mystery of the Christian gospel. Death is the path to life. Death is the path to life. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For who can a man give in return? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Embrace the cross. There's a double embrace in the cross, friends a double embrace that we're called to. The first is understanding that his death is the basis of our life. And second embrace is that his death is the pattern of our life. His death is the basis of our life and his death is the pattern of our life. What the disciples could not get when they heard Jesus speaking about his death and resurrection was the necessity of it. See, they thought that their problem was the Romans. (laughs) Our problem actually is outside of us. My problem is the Romans and this oppressive, you know, puppet king Herod he put in. And so the idea of suffering, it's hard to, when you think your problem is, is political oppression, it's hard to understand how a suffering Messiah who dies humiliated on a cross gets you to that end. And I think it's the same for us today. For us, it's not, of course, political liberation um, that we, we desire so much, but our greatest obstacle in life are all those things that seem to get in the way of me achieve, realizing and achieving sort of the American dream, being a full self. My biggest problem is self-esteem or the lack of affirmation or opportunity. And again, Jesus will disappoint you if you think that this is your biggest problem. If I think this is my biggest problem. But friends, 
my biggest problem, your biggest problem, is not low self-esteem. It's not a lack of opportunity. It is not that people don't see me and accept me for who I am or treat me unjustly. My biggest problem is God. (laughs) My biggest problem is God. And that outside of Jesus Christ, God sees me as his enemy. Outside Outside of Jesus Christ, you are God's enemy. This is a hard, hard truth. It's hard for me to say this because it just seems so cut against the grain of everything. Is this sense that outside of God, outside of Jesus, I'm God's enemy. And he sees me as his enemy because I'm a rebellious, traitorous creature that has rejected his rule and love. And so my life stands under judgment because of my sin, which means that my biggest need in life is not self-esteem, but it's forgiveness. My biggest need in life is not acceptance, but reconciliation. And that's what Jesus came to do, right? He came to die. And the disciples could not comprehend that that's what they needed most, and yet it was. And it's still the same thing that we all need. He had to die in order that we might live. He had to experience death that we might experience life. Jesus' death was necessary. And to be a Christian is to live from that reality. That's at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. To embrace his death is to understand that you live, you have life because of his death. That the suffering, the rejection, the humiliation, the condemnation is yours. And it's a suffering and a rejection and a condemnation that you could never survive. That you would have never endured. And yet he endured it. And now we have life in him. But it's not as if the cross is simply um, the basis of our life that, you know, in the ultimate sense, Jesus died for my sins and I'm good. But it's actually very clearly, Jesus says, the very pattern of my life. That his death is the pattern of my life. Not just in the ultimate sense, but in the immediate. To put it in other terms this way. The pattern of the cross and the path of the cross is the path and the pattern of becoming a true self. The pattern of the cross and the path of the cross is the path to being a true self. Not just being a selfie, but a true self. Think about God reveals himself. God, in a sense, is the ultimate self. There is nobody beyond or before, nobody that gave him existence, and yet here we see on the cross God giving himself. Father, Son, Spirit, all involved. Self-giving, dying And it wasn't just to fix a problem, but it was to demonstrate and to show us what the very meaning of being a true self is, is which is self-giving. To go beyond oneself. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it it calls. And it's, it's difficult, and yet it's the very path of life. It's a paradox. Let me close with C.S. Lewis's reflections on this passage from Mere Christianity. Lewis writes, Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing in you that has not died will really be yours. Think about that. 
Nothing in you that has not died will really ever be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Well, Father, batter our hearts, O three-person God, and may the burden of the, call, of the cross and its call lead to life. Help us to trust and to cling to that cross as the source of life itself, Lord. So wherever we find ourselves this morning, with faith or without faith, in despair or perhaps confidence, bring us to the cross, O Lord. Break us where we need to be broken and bind us up with your resurrection life where we need it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.